0: Our Bibles again to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah please, in the chapter 5 and the verse 14, Nehemiah chapter 5 and the verse 14, and our title this evening is Holy Standards in a Liberal World, Holy Standards in a Liberal World, Nehemiah please, in the chapter 5 and the verse 14, And this is Nehemiah's his voice as the narrator and within the book of Nehemiah. We should have caught on hopefully to that by now. And of course, Nehemiah is recounting the building of the wall, and here he is in verse fourteen, chapter five, and he says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, uh, from the twentieth year even unto the two and thirtieth year of Ataxerces the king, that is, twelve years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. But the former governors that had been before me were uh, chargeable unto the people and had taken of them bread and wine, beside forty shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bare rule over the people, but so did not I, because the fear of God. Yes, also I continued in the work of this wall, neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. Moreover, there were at my table an hundred and fifty of the Jews and rulers, beside those that came unto us from among the heathen that are about us. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowls were prepared for me, and once in ten days store of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor because the bondage was heavy upon the people. Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now it came to pass when Samballat and Tobiah and Jeshim the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at the time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. Uh, that Samballad and Jeshim sent on to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono." Uh, But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent on to me four times after this sort, And I answered them after the same manner. Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand, wherein was written, It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king, according to these words." And thou hast appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now therefore, and let us take counsel together. Then I sent on to him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou thou feignest them out of thine own heart. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it, not, that it not, be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Afterwards I came on to the house of Shemaniah, the son of Deliah, the son of Meth- mehedab which was shut up. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to slay thee. Yes, in the night they will come to slay thee. And I said, should such a man as I flee, and who is there that being as I am, would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And lo, I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sambulet had hired him. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid, and do so, and sin, and that they might have matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, think upon Tobiah and Sanballat, according to their words, and on the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets, that would have put put me in fear. So the wall was finished in the twenty and fifth day of the month Elu, in fifth and two days. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of His word to each of our hearts this evening. D.L. Moody once said, A holy life. You're getting all my points at once, thing. There you go, you don't need me to speak anymore. Um, could you go back one for me, David? Hopefully. We're maybe frozen. You've got my first point anyway. Uh, D.L. Moody, he once said, A holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses don't blow horns, they only shine. A holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses don't blow horns, they only shine. How refreshing it is to have met a man here in the pages of scripture who puts serving the Lord and maintaining his law Ahead of pleasing people and pleasing himself. We live in a day of wholesale compromise across the church of Christ. To the point that some churches are more interested in growing numerically rather than growing in depth and and seeking to live for Christ. And around our country this evening there are so-called churches teaching very liberal theology compromising and bending to the society around them, uh, pleasing man rather than God under the guise of sharing the gospel in a more relevant way. Many so-called churches are willing to do whatever it takes to get their numbers to grow rather than getting God's kingdom to grow. Do holy standards in the church of God really matter? That's the question that comes to us this evening. And really the question must be asked, do we care enough to uphold the full counsel of God in Scripture? You know, we don't need to change our message. And we don't need to change our standards in order to see a sinful world won for Christ. You know, I was reading a story this morning in a magazine that was passed on to me. And it recounts the story of when a young man started to attend church meetings. And after a period of time, he was saved. And subsequently, he applied for church membership. And it was during the interview for membership that the young man pointed out to the elders that things had changed since he started to attend the church. For example, the hymns seemed to be more singable to him, And the sermons made more sense. And the reality was this, that the church did not change or adjust its message. Instead, this young man experienced new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to change to become more relevant. God will change the sinner. I want you to note it wasn't in that little illustration the church that changed. It was the Lord that changed the young man. And if we want to see people truly one for Christ, we need not change, but rather maintain a standard for the Lord. Our job is to stay faithful to God's word. It's to stay faithful to Christ. It's to stay faithful to the standards found within God's word to obey the commands found within, to love the God revealed within, to stand on the promises found within, and to proclaim the gospel unashamedly, to stand unashamedly, keeping standards high that our holy God commands. I wonder do we approach God and his word in such a way that we acknowledge his majesty and his holiness. You know, to our shame we rush into meetings, hearts unprepared. Who do we think we are? Do we fear the Lord anymore? We rarely hear of the holiness of God taught anymore. We live in such a way that it's so obvious because we rush into God's presence with our hands in our pockets as if we're going round the corner to speak to our neighbour. Are we a people who will compromise and tolerate what the world asks us to in order to fit in and be the church that's so-called relevant in 2022? This evening in our passage, there's a lesson for on how, why, and when to say no to the world. And to say no to our very own sinful nature. Saying no to compromise. Keeping holy standards in a liberal world. Paul taught this concept in Titus. By saying no. when he wrote to Titus there in the New Testament. He was writing there to Titus a young believer. A young leader in the church. And in Titus chapter 2 Paul tells the Christian. To say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts. But to live soberly and righteously in this present age. And God's work is to be done in God's way. And Nehemiah he was a man with convictions. And he was going to do God's work in God's way. He wasn't going to bend to what the men around him wanted him to do. He was a man with convictions. And I'll tell you, that's the problem today. There aren't enough people in the church with strong held, holy convictions. I want you to note, in order to maintain a standard, Nehemiah, he said no to privilege. He said no to privilege. We'll ju- just leave the table. We'll, we'll go without the PowerPoint. Uh, no to privilege. At the end of chapter five here, we see that Nehemiah, he set an example You'll remember that he was ju- had just rebuked those who were rich from exploiting those who were poor. And he had called on them, last time we were in, in studying in Nehemiah, he had called on them to repent and to return from what they had taken. But as governor, Nehemiah would have had a right to take the bread and wine rations from the people. It was his right to take it as governor. And we read about this in verses 14 to 19, but we'll look at verse 15. Nehemiah says this. He says, But the former gov- governors, the people who were like me, those who had been governor before me, Nehemiah, Nehemiah said of those, he says, that those that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken from them bread and wine beside 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bear rule over the people. But so did not I. I didn't charge the people. Because of the fear of God. You see, what would have happened is, if you were governor in the land of Judah, you would have had a right to take a ration of bread from the people. It was almost like a tax payable. And the people would have had to give the the bread and wine and certain other things, all sorts of things. Nehemiah would have had a right to take those as governor. He wasn't sinning in doing that. And what he's saying here is he decided against doing that. He decided that even though there were others before him that had done it, and it was their right to do so, he decided that he would not do it. It's a remarkable statement, because what he says, actually, is he says, I didn't do it because of fear of God. You see, here's the thing. In our previous study, we discovered that in chapter 5, there was a famine in the land. The wretch of course have been exploiting those who were struggling to provide for their families and if Nehemiah after rebuking them had started taking more food his right more likely than not the god's work god's work would have ceased the work on the wall would have completely stopped it may never have been completed and Nehemiah would have brought a hindrance himself to the work of god Nehemiah you know he could have said ah well All the rest of the governors before me did it, so I'll just do it too. It's my right, it's my privilege. I hold this responsibility. I'm governor, I have a right to this, but he didn't do it. Do you know, that's the attitude of some Christians today when it comes to compromise and sin. Because others are doing it, so will I. Sure isn't everybody doing it, you hear that? Isn't everybody out of it? Other Christians are doing it nowadays. Are you really going to make it that easy for the devil? I sometimes wonder what some of the great reformers, some who were martyred, would say today if they looked at how we lived as the Church of Christ. Listen to one man, Nehemiah, one man and his example, and what an impact it had. He said, so did not I. I'm not going to do it because it's going to affect God's work. It's going to bring God's work to a stop. You can all do it, but I'm not doing it. I'm taking my stand. I'm not about to look after myself because I have a fear of God. I have a holy reverence for God. I'm interested in his glory, not my glory. I'm interested in God's name being glorified and not my own. Now, there's a spiritual principle here, and it's simply this. Anything of spiritual value usually involves denial of self in one form or another. If Nehemiah wanted the work of, of God to go on, he couldn't behave like everybody who had gone before him. He had to deny himself in some way, and he did. And the work on the wall went on. If he had taken that bread off the people, they would have starved. They wouldn't have been able to work, and they would have stopped. You know, privilege sometimes has to be forfeited in order for God's work to prevail. He said no to his privileges. You know, Moses, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Paul counted all things that were gained to him as loss that he might win Christ. We're told that our saviour humbled himself
1: and made himself
0: of no reputation. Do you know that Nehemiah, was simply saying here. If we could hear him singing it with us tonight, he was saying, Take the world, but give me Jesus. Now, brethren and sisters, this is where it really becomes very serious because no one today listens to the do as I say, not as I do Christianity. We considered this when we looked at the closing verses of chapter one of Philippians a couple of Sundays ago. You might have your big Bible, your fancy suit and your orthodox theology. But at the end of the day, the world's not listening. It's not enough. The do as I say day is gone. We need to be living uh, the life of a believer that reflects the life of Christ. You know, the world often places higher standards upon Christianity than we do in the church. Have you heard anyone say to you or maybe to another Christian? I thought Christians don't do that. I've heard people say that before. The world expects to see a man or woman who is different. And do you know what the church wholesale is trying to do today? It's trying to show the world that we're the same. Trying to show the world that we're relatable. It doesn't work. Even the world knows that that's only a counterfeit.
1: And Nehemiah,
0: he showed practical love as well to the people. He was practical in what he did. He said no to his privilege, but also he, he took from what he had and he served the people. You see, he would have had 150 guests and he would have fed them at his table. You can see that in verse 17. He says, moreover, there were at my table 150 of the Jews and rulers. So there there's 150 Jews and rulers. And beside those that came unto us among the heathen that were about us. He had 150 guests plus more and he fed them at his table. He didn't take his privilege, but he took from what he had and he actually served 150 people each day. Now, could you imagine making dinner for 150 people every day? My mother used to say five men in the house was enough. You know, this would have came at a great personal cost to Nehemiah. But we must take note. 150 people. Nehemiah's table was a well-stocked table. Reminding us of Paul's words in Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But I want you to note something else. There was a place at his table for the haven. For the unseen. Nehemiah was facilitating this daily banquet not only to minister to God's people but also to minister to the lost. Why? Because Israel was always supposed to be a missionary entity. And the nations were to be blessed through them. We read that in Genesis 22 verse 18. They were supposed to be an example of what it looks like when God looks after a people and to reflect his glory. People who, were, people who were not God's people would come close and they would see the beauty of God and the life of the Jew and how they loved God and the relationship they had with God, but they would also witness the love that the Jew had for their brothers and sisters. You know, God's people were to serve one another and they were to serve God and they were to bring these heathen nations in so they could see and witness the glory of God firsthand. You know, to win someone for Christ, it might take you to invite them round for dinner. It might take you to spend a bit of time with them. It might come at personal sacrifice. It might take you to go and call at their door from time to time. Go in and have a coffee with them. It might take you to actually go out and spend time out for a walk, out for a coffee, whatever it is that you do. It might take time to build a friendship and trust with that person. To get someone to come out to the gospel meeting, you can't just walk up to their door, knock it, and say, "You come into the gospel meeting." It takes you to build a friendship with them. It takes you to spend time with them, to show that you love them, the way Christ loves them. You know, Nehemiah he refused his legal rights as a governor in order to ease the burden on his poor brethren, but also to see Christ made known among the heathen nations. God made known. Among the heathen nations. And you know Nehemiah. He reflects on this work. In verse 19. And he prays to the Lord. And this is what he says to God. He looks to God alone for recognition. He says think upon me my God for good. According to all that I have done. For this people. Didn't look to men for his praise. He looked to God. All that he did. He did to please the Lord. And he fed all these people, not to gain praise from them, but to gain praise from the Lord, to gain recognition from the Lord, to make the Lord known. He wanted to please his God. Nehemiah said no to privilege. No to privilege. But I want you to know to secondly, he said no to pride. No to pride. In verse 1 of chapter 6, and also in verse 15, we read the details of the great task which was almost complete. In verse 1, almost complete. In verse 15, it was completed. You see, in verse 1 of chapter 6 here, it says, Now it came to pass when Sambalat and Tobiah and Jeshim the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left therein. The work was nearly finished. And then in verse 15 We read, so the wall was finished in the twenty and fifth day of the month Elu in fifty and two days. Fifty-two days. That was a miracle. A miracle. This wall hadn't been built for ninety years. Nobody had taken on the task because they felt it was too great. And the wall was finished in fifty-two days. You know, Nehemiah had every right to be proud of his achievement. After all, he had travelled nine hundred miles away from a great job that he had there in Persia under King Attaxerxes. Before him, as we've just mentioned, ninety years the wall had sat in disrepair. No one else had thought to take on the work, but Nehemiah, he was burdened. He came and and he came and he fixed the wall and he got the people moved. And you know, Nehemiah, if the news cameras had been able to come along, he could have stood with the microphone and spoke about how proud of himself he was and how he had led these people. He had left his great job, he had travelled so far, and he could have stood and he could have bragged about all that he did. You know, that's the agenda that's pumped into our society today. The message that's pumped into our children at schools. The message that's pumped into professional athletes by by sports Uh, coaches and and sports uh, folk that uh, work with the mind and the agenda pumped in through advertisements. Be proud of yourself. Look after number one. That's what our whole society says today. Look at me. Look at you. You need to look after you. You listen out next time you hear an athlete interviewed after winning gold. They generally say, I'm so proud of myself. Not I'm honoured to have been chosen to represent my country. You hear that less and less these days. But as we see the wall come to its completion, there's no proud words from Nehemiah. In fact, as you you read through and you see the completion of the wall here, there's simply silence. Nehemiah, you see, had a humble dependence upon the Lord. And he recognized without the Lord, he could do nothing. He said no to pride. He understood the truths that we learn in Psalm 34, verse 4. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Nehemiah recognized that what he had achieved was simply because the hand of God was upon his life. The enemy threw their final attempt to hinder the building of the wall. But yet again, at the end of verse 9, we find Nehemiah the praying man. Let me ask you, how is your personal prayer life how is it i think all of us could admit that at times or maybe even most of the time our prayer life isn't as it ought to be now listen to this alistair Begg commented on these verses saying this he said nehemiah's prayers are the key to the absence of his pride nehemiah's prayers are the key to the absence of his pride. He goes on, he says this. A proud heart will lead to the absence of prayers. Now, did you get that? Nehemiah's prayers are the key to the absence of his pride. A proud heart will lead to the absence of prayers. In First Peter 5, we're told that God opposes the proud. And Peter encourages his readers to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Do you know what we learn from Nehemiah's silence? Do you know what it means for you and for me? It means learning to keep silent
1: when I want
0: to tell everyone what I've done. When I want to tell everyone what a great job I've done. It means that we are silent and we acknowledge that the work that God has chosen to do through you to glorify himself. And let me suggest that everything you do, that it should be done with this attitude of prayer, with full dependence upon the Lord, that'll keep you humble. I wonder, are we quick to speak about what we're doing for the Lord and brag about it? Nehemiah, he said no to brag. He said no to privilege. He said no to pride. But finally, he said no to mindlessness. Mindlessness. Now, this one isn't easy to recognize in the passage, so I want you to come along with me. I want you to see this. Nehemiah was alert to danger because in verse 2 we read this. Samballot and Jeshim sent on to me saying, Come let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But then he says this, But they thought to do me mischief. Ono was in a a valley. It was about 15 miles from Jerusalem. It was a trading town. And it seems like his enemies, Sambalat and Jeshim, have offered this polite invite. Just come and we'll we'll talk about the wolf. But we're just going to talk about it. We're we're not too happy at what's going on in Jerusalem. We're not too sure what you're doing. But we're we're just going to have a conversation. We, We want to chat with you about it. And, you know, Nehemiah could have thought, well, this this is better than what they've been doing before. They've been threatening to attack. They've been threatening to do all these things. I'll just go and meet with them. This is great. They've finally come round to my terms. And he could have mindlessly went on a whim and could have met with them, but he didn't. He was alert. They thought to do me mischief, he says. And again, you know, in First Peter 5, Peter tells us that we need to be self-controlled and alert. That's in verse 8. And in First Peter 5 he tells us that we need to be sober minded and watchful. Why does Peter go on and on about these things? Do you know why? Because Peter failed. Because Peter failed. He betrayed the Lord. He denied the Lord. And he wasn't alert. And, and the Lord had told him that he would be sift like wheat. And Peter let the Lord die. And no wonder Peter writes so much about being alert. No wonder Peter writes so much about being watchful. Do you remember the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane? He told Peter to watch him pray. and pray. He went back and there was Peter and he was found asleep. Peter failed that night. And Peter wrote there in 1 Peter, be sober minded, be watchful, be self-controlled, be alert. And Nehemiah, he was alert. He knew what was going on. He wasn't mindless. You know, this seemed like a peaceful invitation from the enemy. Let's talk about this. But Nehemiah knew they were up to no good. They wanted to make bargains with him. They wanted to cause him to compromise on what the Lord had called him to do. And they came four times in that manner. And then they wrote a letter and they sent a false prophet to encourage Nehemiah to run and hide. And they tried to get Nehemiah to compromise, to look after himself and leave God's work. Now we're studying this passage this evening under the title Holy Standards in a Liberal World. If you're in the habit of doing it, I want you to go home and I want you to underline this verse in your Bible because look at verse 3. Nehemiah responds to them and he says, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work. In other words, I'm about the master's business and I can't come down. I'm not going to come down. And lower my standards. I'm not going to leave God's work. And waste my time with you the enemy. He doesn't mindlessly and without thought. Wander off to please these men. Nehemiah has a job that the Lord has told him to do. And he won't lower his standard. And he won't compromise. He says I'm not coming down. And here we have a man with holy convictions and high standards. The enemy was doing his utmost to get him to leave the wall. And they were doing their best to take him away from his high and holy calling. But Nehemiah, he didn't bow to their whims. He kept the standard. He kept the faith. He kept at God's work. And he wouldn't listen to these distractions. And he wouldn't bend to them. He had healthy skepticism. He had discernment. Based on what the Bible already tells us about what man is like. And based on what the Bible already tells us what we are like. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? Nehemiah stopped. And he considered their scheme. And he knew that they were trying to frighten and intimidate the people. But Nehemiah wasn't vacant minded. You know there's too many Christians these days and they're vacant minded. They're just tossed about in the sea of light. And they compromise here and there and they don't study their Bible as they ought in order to know why we do things the way we do. And so many simply say, well, I'm trusting in God, so I've got faith and everything's fine. And they just sail through life. And they they don't have any personal vigilance. Let me tell you, trusting in God doesn't remove us from the duty of personal vigilance. It's as simple as this, dear Christian. Don't invest in this world, for it's passing away. And only the things that we do for the Lord are going to last. This present world system is not a lasting one. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 31, it says this, The fashion of this world passeth away. And if we're to compromise and dip our toes in this world, we damage our gospel witness. You know, John tells us in 1 John not to love the world. He says, love not the world. Don't be enticed by the sin around us. Don't, don't bend your standards. Don't, don't buy down. The great missionary, uh, Jim Elliot, once wrote this. He wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So what are we to do as we go out to face the world again throughout the rest of this week? As we face the temptations and the attacks from all angles. As the devil subtly tempts us to compromise in our holy living and in keeping our standards. Well the process begins with surrender. Present your as a living sacrifice. A Christian who loves the world and dabbles in it will never know the will of God. The father shares the secrets with those who obey him. If any man will do his will... He shall know the doctrine. God reveals his will to us through his word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. A worldly believer has no appetite for the Bible. A spiritual believer who spends time reading the Bible and meditating on it will find God's will there and will know exactly what it means when we talk about a holy standard. To sum it up, a Christian is in the world physically, but he's not to be in the world spiritually. That's what holy living is all about. A Christian is in the world physically, but he's not to be in the world spiritually. Christ has sent us into the world to be a witness for him, not to become part of it. You see, when the boat is in the water, there's no problem. But when the water gets into the boat, there's a big problem. And when the Christian lives in the world, there's no problem. But when the world lives in the Christian, there's a big problem. It's as simple as this. You can't love the Father and keep a holy standard and love the world at the same time. They're mutually incompatible. And let me throw this challenge to you this evening as we close. We're all guilty of running around and living for things that are temporal and allowing the world to cause us to compromise. And all of us are guilty of being mindless and giving more time to the world than we really should. All of us, preacher included, are guilty of doing that. Why don't you work for something that's permanent for a change? Why don't you work for something that will last? he began with a quote from D.L. Moody and this is the verse that D.L. Moody took as his motto throughout his life and ministry and when he died it was inscribed upon his tombstone it's found in First John and inscribed upon D.L. Moody's tombstone is this he that doeth the will of God abideth forever he that doeth the will of God abideth forever Listen, if we're interested in holy living, holy standings, and not bending and compromising to this world, and doing the will of God, that's what lasts. That's what will have an impact for all eternity. Do you know something? Well, Moody was alive. Do you know what the world called him? Do you know what different people called him in papers and things like that? Mad Moody. That's what they called him for living a Holy Stand. Mad Moody. That's what he was called by the world. But I'm very sure today that Dale Moody has no regrets. Oh, that our love for the world would wane. in. No other oh, a prayer today would be. Savior at thy feet, I bow. Help me run well for thee. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you just now. And Father, we feel the challenge of your word this evening. Father, we thank you that you are the God who has loved us unconditionally because we don't deserve to be loved. Because we let you down every day. And Father, as your people so often, We stumble and we do compromise and we do allow the the devil to subtly work at us. But Father, we pray that today you would help us to stand on the ordinances set out in Scripture, that we would read it and that, Father, we would see it as you have written it, that we, Father, would live it as it's written and not read things that are found in this book and Bend them to our own liking or take some things and leave some things out, Father, because that doesn't work. Father, help us to fully obey this book from start to finish. Father, show us where we've gone wrong. Show us in our lives where we have allowed sin to enter. Father, cleanse us afresh. Father, we realise that the only way that we'll see souls want for Christ is if we stand and live holy lives that people can see Christ in us. Help us to live for you, that we may have an impact in the world around us. That those who are unsaved in our communities and our neighbours would see that there's something different about us. That, Father, they would seek Christ as a result of our witness. Father, bless us as we come to this time of prayer just now. We pray, Father, that your presence will be very real in this room. That, Father, as we speak with you and commune with you in this time of prayer, that, Father, you will be very near. Bless us, we pray. We ask this in our Saviour's name. Amen. Let me just bring a number of points for prayer. And this evening, please do pray for the office bearers and their wives as they serve the Lord here in the church. Remember Bill and I as we labor for the Lord as elders. Pray for great wisdom for all the different...